Just a trivia that the first 20 years of our existence as a church, nobody clapped when we got up to... I don't know what happened exactly that that changed. Tom and I just came back from traveling for a couple weeks. We have a little more traveling this season. Part of it is traveling that was planned two years ago is, is finally happening. And I can't tell if I'm biased or if it's just true that we have the best community of people anywhere, but it's so great to be back with you all. So uh, this morning is going to be a little bit different. We're going to do a little bit more prayer and a little bit less teaching. We do this from time to time. Um, and we're going to start by reciting the first 14 lines of Psalm 139 together. So you can stand for this. We'll read it together. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely, the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Amen. You can be seated. People commented after my last teaching, which was about loving your neighbor as you love yourself, which had implications of how we loved ourselves, that it went against their Christian upbringing to actually love themselves. I heard from a couple people that they would have been explicitly taught not to be self-affirming. I thought to myself, why would anybody choose religion? Like, why would we be Christian? It doesn't make sense. We can celebrate the mountains. We can celebrate flowers. We can celebrate poetry. But I can't say I love myself. I love these specific things about me. 
that I'm made in the image of God, that I'm knit together by the hand of God in my mother's womb. I just want to note that the psalmist praised God because he or she thought that they were so amazing. Like that's in the scripture. This prayer is coming from our sacred text and the psalmist is saying, praise you God for making me so wonderful. Prayer rehearses what we know to be true. It allows us to affirm truths even if we haven't fully embraced them. In this case, it is me saying to me what I would say to any of you. Oh, friend, you're wonderful. You're amazing, of course you're amazing. You're made in the image of God. We're going to have one more prayer experience before we get to our scripture. We're going to take a moment um, to pray, and then I'm going to run through some reflection questions and a short reflection. So we're literally going to take about a minute of silence, and everybody is invited to pray the way you feel comfortable praying, the words that you feel comfortable praying. So and maybe it's an established prayer. Maybe it's Psalm 33, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that's a prayer that you like reciting. Um, maybe it is um, a help me make it through the day, life is brutal prayer. Um, maybe it's a prayer for somebody you know who is suffering, like, please be with Uncle Joe. I know he's not doing well. Um, it could be silence. If you're someone who's used to silent prayer, trying to experience God beyond words. But if you are doing words, and if your prayer is like a sentence long, flesh it out. Figure out words like, I'm praying for Uncle Joe. It is so hard for me to watch Uncle Joe suffer. Bring your mercy, bring your healing to Uncle Joe. I think about Uncle Joe's family. Whatever it is, try to go beyond just a minute. I mean, just that line, um, if you're using words. And we're going to do that for about a minute, starting now. Amen. So here's some reflection questions. If you prayed with words, which is called cataphatic prayer, um, uh, were they your own words? Or was it a prayer that you learned somewhere? Did you pray to Jesus, to God, to the Spirit, to the universe? Who did you pray to? Was your God personal, embodied, universal, spirit? Did your prayer end in Jesus' name? Should your prayers end in Jesus' name? Are you comfortable praying? Is it natural, weird? Is this the first time you've prayed in a long time? Did you pray on your way here this morning? And finally, has how you've prayed changed for you over the years? And if so, how do you feel about those changes? Have the changes been 
conscious, intentional? Have they reflected theological changes or commitments? Have you, your changes been in sync with your own changing in life, growing, maturing, evolving? Why do you think your prayers have changed if they have? I've been learning to pray most of my um, life. As uh, most of you knew, I grew up praying in Hebrew in the synagogues. And these were prescribed, in the synagogue, these were prescribed prayers. So every night I said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad before I went to bed, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are so many prayers for food. I share this periodically, but they're called brochas, blessings. So, prayer for vegetables, for fruit, for meat. And so our one saving grace was if you had bread in the meal, you could say what was called the hamotzi, which covered everything and you got by with the one prayer, which is what we kids prayed for, please let there be bread at the meal. When I joined the vineyard as a young woman, we had a five-step prayer model for healing the vineyard as a signs and wonders movement. So power prayers like praying for God to heal you right now mattered. Now, I don't know how much the model mattered. I suppose it made it easier for us to know what to pray or how to pray because we have these steps. Um, but we did occasionally see people healed. We've seen people healed over the years in our church. Probably the most notably was a few years ago when a young woman brought her father. Um, we ended up having a healing service during communion where we prayed for people. Her father had a, a sizable tumor resting against his trigenital nerve. Um, he felt something happening during communion, came forward, received prayer, uh, felt relief from pain for the first time in a year. He had surgery scheduled that he went through with. The surgeon said, we don't understand. We took this x-ray a week ago, but there's nothing here. Um, so we, we've seen some of that. I've learned conversational prayer um, in the vineyard as a way of life. And this has really served Tom and me over the years regularly as we are doing life together and we're talking about a church, or we're talking about the kids, or we're talking about a friend, something comes up and we say, let's pray. And it's woven into our conversations. It was probably in my 40s that I became very into centering prayer. Maybe some of you know what that is. I read a book called Celebration of Disciplines, which is really dated um, by a guy named Richard Foster. And it talked about something called centering prayer, where you're trying to just be silent for a stained period of time and connect with God beyond words. It is normal, all that to say, that the ways we pray over the years change. It makes sense that if we come across someone whose prayer uh, life stirs us or their spirituality stirs us, that we would want to learn from them. And that is our story this morning. We're reading from Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Presumably, the disciples were already praying fixed hour prayers at the point where they're asking Jesus how to pray. They already have a liturgy, but either they see something different in Jesus that they don't recognize in how Jesus prays or just in how Jesus is connecting with God that they are hungry for. And so Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, it is tempting to just pray it as it is. But I think that Jesus is giving us a template that could be fleshed out in a gazillion different ways. He's giving us categories. He's giving us values. But here is an example of how I might pray this prayer so that I can authentically embody it and make it mine. Our mother, our father, your name is mystery. Bring your liberation and your healing to all creation. Some of us experience abundance and others of us lack. Help us to be aware of what our daily bread is. Help us to know how our consumption impacts humanity and all of creation. God, help us turn from our greed from our callousness, from our narcissism. Make us a people who freely forgive and freely receive forgiveness. We center our lives on you, oh God. It seems to me that the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, Jesus sets the stage for what to want and what to pray for. Essentially, we are praying for God's goodness to flow to everyone and for our self-centeredness to get out of the way. Jesus goes on and says, and Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not give, get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet, because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, the door will be open. So I will summarize this, but first I want to say that this is not saying that every prayer that we pray, if we're just tenacious enough, about it will get answered. 
Of course not, because if that were the case, none of us would be hungry, none of us would be sick, and none of us would die. Right? That can't be what it's about. This is about God's inviting us to be tenacious in going after goodness. God warns us. God says, listen, you guys, it is going to be hard. Jesus says it's going to be like an uphill battle. Bringing God's kingdom, or what some of us call God's kingdom, is the hardest thing. It will go against human nature. God says, don't give up. Keep hoping. Keep knocking. Keep protesting. Keep looking for opportunities. Keep awake. So a few thoughts about the disciples' question, how to pray, what to pray, who to learn from, and we'll close with one more prayer. The disciples asked. They just came to Jesus. They just said, Jesus, teach us to pray. I mean, maybe they're jealous of John's disciples. Like, John taught his disciples how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And the invitation is for us to keep asking. Find the people whose prayer lives, and when you think of prayer lives, we're just talking about connecting, going beyond our intellectual ascent, that there is a God, that there is a Jesus. We're just talking about connecting with God. Find the people whose prayers lives or whose spirituality stirs you. Hang with them. Ask questions. Maybe it's a friend or maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's an author or a, a spiritual leader from a different stream. But the scripture invites us to be open and curious. I heard one, someone say just recently, I didn't go from conservative to more liberal. I went from closed to open. In other words, I went from having all the answers to being curious. During the first year of COVID, I listened to a translation of a saint, St. Teresa of Avila, I listened to um, her memoir, and literally for the year, because it's a long memoir, and I listened to a little bit every day, but it was super inspiring to me at that time. It was, it was dark during that first year. We didn't know what we were facing. We were isolated from people, and Teresa brought me to God. She taught me how to pray. I'm a big fan of Father Richard Rohr. I read his books, I listen to his podcasts. Our Wednesday night, we have a monthly Wednesday night contemplative prayer small group that I wish everybody would come to because it's so lovely. But it gives me ideas of how others are connecting with God because multiple people lead it. This is honestly the question that has been alive for me and Tom since we were in our 20s and first met. How do we keep our relationship with God alive? How do we keep our relationship with God fresh? We have uh, spiritual conversations all the time. We were in Canada the last two weeks. I swear we were having the spiritual conversations with bears. They are, our conversations are alive and they're glorious. And we pray. We often pray together. Number two, if you pray scriptures, like if you pray the Psalms, or if you're praying the Lord's Prayer, invite God to help you flesh it out, to bring it into your own words. Like, what is our daily bread? What's the temptation that you're avoiding? How, how do you understand evil? Who is it that I'm being invited to forgive? 
Are there invitations, stirrings? Is God saying something back to you? Don't be afraid to make language um, meaningful for you. There's a writer, Jonathan Merritt, who's a, a religion and culture writer, and he wrote a book called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Retrieve, Revive Them. I like the title. He describes how linguistically, if words don't adapt in their meaning over time, they lose their meaning. And he talks about his move from North Carolina, where he was in the Bible Belt, um, to New York City. And the words that he used, people just looked at him like if he said grace or mercy. People just looked at him like, we don't know what you're talking about. He said, I, I said something using the gospel in a sentence, and the person gave me a blank look, didn't know what I meant. He talked about our need to contemporize what he called sacred language. And the idea is if our language isn't contemporized for new generations, it becomes irrelevant. So Merrick gave an example in the scripture that I'll just say quickly. He talked about how sin changes, the notion of sin from the beginning of the scripture over the generations. So he describes for the most ancient people Sin was perceived as stain. Generations later, sin was perceived as a weight that we as a community carry and need scapegoats for. In Paul's day, when the language of commerce was uh, common, Paul talks about sin as debt. Scripture uses the same word, but its meaning is understood afresh um, in different contexts and different times in history. We can take a, a word, a look, we can take a word like sin and look at it and ask what it means to us today. Like maybe sin is anything that keeps another person from God. Maybe the exclusionary practices of many churches could be called sin. Maybe the exclusionary practices we participated in for 15 years of our church life could be called sin. Maybe our transition to inclusion in 2016 was God's delivering us from evil. It is up to us, communities of faith, to renegotiate our sacred language, to keep it relevant and meaningful today. And this is why we should be praying for James and for our, our worship leaders and our worship teams to write songs for us. The songs that James has written for us over the years, they use our language, they speak and they connect to us. When we sing those songs, everybody engages. Um, so we could be praying for them to keep coming up with songs and with liturgies that use our language. And finally, three, we are at one of those times in history where it can be easy for some of us to want to give up. We have knocked on the door of climate change, and we have seen very little response. We've knocked on the door for legislation that cares for sexual minorities that cares for trans youth. And we've been largely ignored. We've knocked on the doors of racism. We've knocked on the doors of misogyny. And we've not been heard. It is understandable 
that some of us are ready to give up on that knocking. I listen to some of my adult children and I understand their despair. Jesus says to us, keep knocking. We are invited to be endlessly creative with our knocking. Maybe we can describe our knocking as active, prayerful hope. We knock by calling our elected officials. We knock by attending rallies and protests. We knock with our money. Tom knocked last week by writing an editorial for one of our papers that'll come out this week decrying yet one more denomination saying no to queerness. And of course, we knock by ceaselessly praying. So we'll close this morning by praying one last prayer together, and then we'll move from there into communion. So you can stand. And we'll pray this together. Jesus, teach me to pray to find words that connect me to you, to your love and your being and your mystery, words that are of us in this room, of us in this city, and of us in this time. Jesus, teach me to pray using words that are in me right now, and Jesus, Teach me to trust silence where my words fail. Amen. At this time, we'll transition to worship along with communion. The worship team can come forward.